Welcome to On the Middle East, our monitor's podcast on the big developments in the region. My name is Ambrin Zaman and today I'll be focusing on Iraq and Turkey. Last month, Iraq won a landmark legal case in a court of arbitration against Turkey over oil exports from Iraqi Kurdistan, which Baghdad insists are illegal. Turkey was reportedly ordered to pay a $1.5 billion fine. That is way less than the tens of billions of dollars originally estimated. Meanwhile, Iraq and the Kurdistan regional government have struck a deal to resume the exports that are valued at around $1 billion per month. This is used to keep the Iraqi Kurdish public sector afloat, so it's critical. However, Turkey has yet to allow the oil to flow to export terminals on its Mediterranean shores, and it hasn't offered a formal reason for this. Amid such uncertainty, a drone strike on a major US-Syrian Kurdish ally has added to tensions between Turkey and Iraq, with Baghdad blaming Ankara for the attempted killing of Maslum Kobani, the commander-in-chief of the Syrian Democratic Forces, who is the US-led coalition's top ally in the fight against the Islamic State in Syria. Three U.S. military officials were in Kobani's convoy as it headed to the Kurdistan region's second-largest airport in Suleymaniyya. So, the airstrike took place in Iraqi territory. With us here to discuss all these developments is Bilal Wahab, a senior fellow at the Washington Institute of Near East Policy, who writes extensively on Iraqi affairs. Welcome to On the Middle East, Bilal. It's great to have you on our program today. Thank you for having me back. Good to be with you, Amberin. So can you please tell us what's going on between Iraq, Turkey and the KRG with regard to this arbitration case where we have Turkey claiming victory when in fact Turkey was fined, the Iraqis claiming the opposite, and the KRG seemingly kind of squeezed in the middle, um, but with Turkey still not resuming the flow uh, of, of the oil. Can you tell us what's happening? And also perhaps briefly explain to our audience uh, what how this pipeline actually physically looks, because there's also an Iraqi part from Kirkuk. So it's all a bit confusing. And I know that you're the best person to distill this for us. Uh, thank you, Amberin. It is it is a bit of a of an enigma, and uh, uh, they say that uh, a loss is an orphan, and a win has a lot of uh, fathers, I guess, uh, or parents. Uh, long story short, the uh, this goes back to the question of the Iraqi Constitution that was ratified in two thousand and five, uh, where the Kurds, the KRG parties, injected clauses that would grant the KRG a greater say in managing the natural resources, the oil and gas, uh, beneath uh, Kurdish feet, so to speak. Uh, but the constitution is just a, it's just a general clause. You need to uh, translate that into a law. Uh, however, Iraq never passed a national hydrocarbons law, a post-Saddam or a post-Ba'ath 
regime that really regulates, uh, you know, what I call oil federalism that was at least uh, enshrined or or uh, uh, prescribed in in the constitution. So therefore, what that meant is Baghdad and Erbil, the KRG and the federal government, uh, took matters to uh, their own hands. They interpreted the constitution based on their reading, but also based on the uh, the the balance of power between. Uh, the regional government and the federal government at the time. And the KRG basically adopted a policy of, um, uh, you know, shoot and ask questions later or ask for uh, forgiveness, not not permission. Uh, Baghdad was a mess. Iraq was in the middle of a civil war. There were like, you know, hundreds of car bombs a day in Iraq. So this kind of Iraq was easy for the KRG to shrug off. So in 2007, in the absence of a national oil law, the KRG parliament passed a regional natural resources law. They built a ministry, Ministry of Natural Resources, and they basically started uh, signing oil and gas contracts. And the companies, the international oil companies, the IOCs, uh, you know, the alphabet soup, they really flooded the region. And within a matter of years, the KRG had some 40 contracts signed with these, uh, you know, so to speak, wildcatters, uh, small oil companies who are more tolerable to take in major risk, uh, which also comes with major rewards. And, uh, you know, basically by, 2000, by 2009, the KRG was producing enough oil uh, to start uh, um, exporting. And initially, much of the oil was exported, you know, through trucks. And uh, so you had miles and miles of trucks at the Iraq-Iran border, at the Iraq-Turkey you know, border for a while. They were dubbed pipes on wheels. Because they were literally, you know, wheel like like you know, they formed a pipe of sorts. But then uh, the KRG, I think, uh, struck a deal with Turkey, uh, and uh, that uh, this this takes me to the last question that you asked of like, what is the, what does the pipeline look like? So you have. Before before the before the war, uh, you had a pipeline. The, the the northern pipeline system basically constituted on the Iraqi side of a twin pipeline that took oil from Kirkuk oil fields to uh, the border to the tri-border, the Iraq Iran, uh, sorry Iraq Iran uh, Turkey border, sorry Iraq Syria Turkey border. Uh, what the KRG did, they built a pipeline that took oil, collected oil from the Kurdish fields into that, uh, into that connecting point where the Kirkuk pipeline was connecting to uh, the, the Turkish leg of the pipeline. So you have an Iraqi leg that goes from Kirkuk to the border. Then you have a, basically a long Turkish leg that goes all the way from southern Turkey to uh, Jehan, to the, from the border to Jehan. So at what the point KRG... do the two meet? You know, they meet inside Iraq, right? The KRG oil and the Kirkuk pipeline. The KRG so... pipeline hooks up to the Kirkuk Yumurtalik pipeline. Is that right? Yes, but what the KRG does, it connects to this ITP, Iraq-Turkey pipeline, inside Iraq, okay, before it enters Turkey, but on a on a small um, uh, swath of, of land that's under KRG control. Uh huh. So so in effect in effect the KRG commandeered uh, the ITP. 
Now, of course, matters get uh, get exacerbated after 2014 because in 2014, ISIS takes over uh, a third of the country and uh, their control of the land, but also sabotage by you know terrorists and smugglers before had really taken the Iraq leg, the the Kirkuk. Uh, Turkish border leg of the ITP totally offline. There were just too many holes, too many explosions. You know, smugglers would come, poke a hole in it, try to take oil out. So that leg of the pipeline was completely decommissioned. And so you ended up practically, you know, the ITP becoming KRG to Turkey and then from Turkey to Jihan. The Turkish leg was never was never hot. So ISIS like never got seized control of that part where the Kurdish pipeline hooks up with the ITP. They the KRG no. continued to control that. Okay, KRG continued to control that. So 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 this is basically the 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 physics or the physical aspect of how oil started flowing. And again, as we speak, Kirkuk's oil, uh, the only outlet for Kirkuk oil is for it to be shipped to the KRG. And then, uh, 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 you know, uh, filling in the pipeline that the KRG now controls. So the only way for Kirkuk oil to be exported uh, is with the help of the KRG. It had to be mixed with KRG's oil and then it gets separated uh, at Jehan because Somo has its own storage facilities and the KRG has its own separate storage facilities. So, so this is kind of the physical aspect of things. But there is also, in parallel, there's a whole political and legal dimension that's going on. That goes to the question that you asked me about arbitration. The story there is this pipeline, this ITP, has is, is subject to an agreement between Iraq and Turkey that goes back to 1973. This agreement was updated uh, in 2010. So in the update in particular, the Iraqi government had the Turkish side to agree that no oil passes through these pipelines without the specific agreement, not just of the Iraqi government or the Iraqi side, but specifically the Iraqi Ministry of Oil. Now, any oil that passed since then, Iraq basically uh, accuses Turkey, uh, sorry, Iraq uh, accuses Turkey of allowing the KRG uh, to export oil without specific approval and green light from the Ministry of Oil. And, and that, that triggered the, the arbitration. Okay, that forms the basis of the case. Okay, right. That is the basis of the case. And so so Baghdad tried a few things. Baghdad, number one, and, and most importantly, tried to regain control over the ITP uh, and therefore blocking uh, the KRG uh, oil from flowing without Baghdad's consent. And again, by extension, uh, and doing some of the independent energy policies that the KRG has has come to uh, to win, because at this point the KRG has independence over production, has independence over signing oil contracts, and has independence over over exports. So it's a it's a total independent energy industry. Even its marketing strategy is different from uh, from that of the Iraqi government. So the number one goal of the Iraqi government by taking Ankara to arbitration was to regain some of that control. And then second, it also asked for some reparations because Iraq was claiming that it had lost uh, revenue. It has lost money uh, by not controlling this pipeline. What the arbitration which took about nine years to come uh, with a, to come out with a solution, uh, ended up giving Iraq some 
as you pointed, that's why everyone has something to win. So it gave Baghdad the main ask, which was to, re to regain control over the uh, uh, flow of oil through the pipeline. But it did not give Iraq the you know, tens of billions of dollars that Baghdad was asking in, in reparations. Turkey is happy that it doesn't have to pay up some 20 or 30 billion dollars. It only has to pay up about 1.5 billion dollars. So uh, Baghdad feels a winner. Turkey feels a winner. And I think uh, the one that's obviously uh, ended up with the shorter end of the stick is the KRG. Because immediately after the arbitral rule, Turkey decided to shut down the pipeline. So Kurdish oil has not been flowing since uh, since March 25th. But in the meantime, uh, after that decision, the KRG in Baghdad, Masrur Barzani, the PM, traveled to Baghdad and apparently struck a deal. They claimed that they'd reached an agreement on how to uh, administer these oil revenues and, you know, overcome this, this situation. Yet Turkey is still not resuming the flow of the oil and there there's all kinds of speculation as to why Turkey is embracing this hardline stance. What what are you hearing and what do you think reflects the truth below? Actually, as we speak, uh, Amber, in two days ago, uh, the Iraqi government uh, uh, tried, is, is trying or started to, to, to enforce that arbitral award in a U.S. district court which means that Baghdad is taking action. Mm -hmm. uh, you're absolutely right. Turkey, by shutting down the pipeline and by signaling to both KRG and Baghdad that is going to uh, uh, basically uphold the arbitral uh, award, has shut down the pipeline. And shutting down the pipeline, I would argue, forced KRG and Baghdad to negotiate and arrive at the deal which has been on the books for many years, because and this, it, remember- and just interrupt, you know, um, we mentioned the fact that the pipeline, part of it, the ITP was sort of destroyed by um, ISIS and um, it, it fell out of use, but, but the flow of oil through there had resumed at one point, correct? Since then, the, from Kirkuk as well. This is just a little aside, just to clarify. Right. So right, it's right, not right. just I, KRG oil that's not flowing, it's the oil that resumed through ITP also. So that kind of hurts Baghdad as well, right? Because there's some 200,000 barrels or, or so that goes through that pipeline. So so recently it has been down to about 75,000 okay, barrels of, of Iraqi oil. So that's uh -huh. Kirkuk oil. Mm -hmm. So uh, yes, I mentioned that in passing. You're absolutely right. For a while... Uh, both the Iraq-controlled leg uh, uh, of the pipeline was operational as well as the KRG. But then after ISIS, after 2014, the Iraqi government lost total control to the Kirkuk, uh, let's say, uh, uh, Khabur uh, uh, pipeline. And therefore, they ended up relying on the KRG to export their oil. So of the 400 to 450,000 barrels of oil that uh, is transported through the pipeline. Uh, it has been. It has gone down from 120,000 to about 75,000 barrels of Iraqi oil recently, okay. and that oil reaches Jehan. But then, as as I said, in Jehan ends up in right. separate storages that okay, uh, Iraqi and Kurdish government control. Of Iraqi crude is also not being exported as a result. Oh, of absolutely. Um, so let's get back to what. <clears throat> 
Turkey is doing. And also, why why is Iraq doing this in a U.S. federal court? So to to answer the earlier question, to, to finish the answer to the earlier question, if 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 I may. Uh, by shutting down the pipeline and therefore hurting KRG revenue and Iraqi revenue, Turkey forced Erbil and Baghdad to finally sign the agreement that you referred to by uh, uh, Prime Minister Sudani and Prime Minister uh, uh, Masrur Barzani. That is a political deal. Uh, as I said, it has been on the books for a long time, uh, but it took it took this major action, shutting down the pipeline, for that to happen. Uh, I think it's a political deal. It's not the first time that the KRG and Baghdad sign such a political deal under pressure or under duress or under some kind of an imbalance of power between both sides. For example, when oil prices were low, KRG wasn't making enough revenue, so it was kind of beholden to Baghdad and then was more uh, amenable to, to offering concessions. And then vice versa, when oil prices you know, rise, then the KRG has enough revenue, so it reneges. Baghdad in the past has reneged on many promises that it has made to the KRG over, over the budget. So these are handshake political deals in the absence of the national oil and gas law and perhaps a national revenue sharing law. Uh, this, this deal, despite its high profile and you had two prime ministers and celebrations and, you know, the, nation, the U.S. National Security Council issued a statement and celebrating and congratulating both sides. This could be yet another short-term handshake political deal that, uh, you know, that uh, could be added to the list of failed, uh, failed deals. But I think at the end of the day, if this were to move forward, it would be the end of an era for independent Kurdish oil. Uh, there will be some linkages between Kurdish oil and federal uh, Iraqi uh, uh, oil industry. Uh, the deal basically stipulates that uh, Kurdish oil will be marketed by by the Iraqi government, by SOMO, the state oil marketing organization. And uh, a Kurd, a KRG representative, will be the vice president or the deputy head of SOMO. So the Kurds will have a say in this organization that from now on, will be marketing Kurdish oil, which is also the sole authority that markets all of Iraqi oil. What this means, Amberin, to be honest with you, it basically means, as I said, the KRG doesn't have that 100% autonomy over its, its energy industry. For now, there isn't much say on the contracts and the legality of the contracts. Because remember, the, the reason why the KRG finally budged, because it has been under tremendous pressure from Baghdad, there has been military pressure by militia rockets on uh, KRG oil fields. There were also an Iranian direct attack on uh, uh, the house of uh, Bas Karim, the CEO of, uh, of, of Kar Group, which, by the way, operates the uh, KRG leg of the pipeline with a Russian firm. Uh, there, was a, there were two or decisions by the Iraqi Federal Supreme Court uh, that uh, basically the, the, one of them totally undermined the legality of the KRG oil and gas industry. It basically said that the contracts are illegal, the pipeline is illegal, the sale is illegal, the companies... It was basically very, very extremist in its, its decision. But KRG could basically uh, shrug off all of these. But when, you know, when the pipeline was shut, the KRG was kind of forced... Yeah, uh, to sit so at the table and negotiate. Is, is the pipeline still shut? And why is Iraq uh, going to a U.S. federal court 
to, to complain about Turkey? What's that about? Those are excellent questions. The first one, remember that I said Iraq had won about uh, a billion and a half mm -hmm. uh, out of the arbitration. So that's a billion and a half that Turkey has to pay up. Mm -hmm. And this is an arbitral award. So the arbitration court doesn't really have much of a uh, much of an enforcement capacity. It doesn't have any enforcement capacity, actually. So the only way for that to be enforced is for the sides, so in this case, Iraq and Turkey, to then take this arbitral award and then ask specific governments and countries, law uh, and judicial forces in countries to enforce uh, these rulings. And then you have the New York Convention, which Iraq and Turkey are both signatories of, that basically imposes, it's a kind of a self-imposed decision that they will respect and they will honor arbitral awards. And so this is what Iraq is doing, is basically bringing that arbitral award, which, which is not enforceable, to a U.S. district court. They could bring it to London, they could take it to Paris, they could take it to... So this is uh, an escalation Ankara. of sorts. It is definitely an escalation of well, sorts. We were under and... the impression that Sudani's visit to Turkey, uh, his meeting with Erdogan went really well. And that they kind of, you know, made deals over the Kurds' heads and Turkey agreed to release more water, you know, of the Euphrates, which is, of course, a huge issue, drought in Iraq. And that, you know, everything would be hunky-dory from there on. But obviously, uh, there is a problem and Turkey is not allowing the flow to resume. So what's Turkey's reasoning here? Especially given that, you know, they they were fined a far lesser amount than everyone was talking about. Wouldn't it be in their interest to sort of settle up and, you know, move on? What is Turkey trying to do? It would be in their interest if if interest were the only uh, uh, the only measure here. Uh, there is on, on the Turkish side, this is the leverage. The primary leverage that Turkey has is control of the pipeline, is basically denying both KRG and Baghdad the flow of their, of their main asset, of their breadwinner. Uh, although when they do that, uh, oil prices have, have shot up by a bit. So in a way, the Iraqi government was act actually making up some of the losses of the 70, 75,000 barrels that they lose a day uh, by making up for a spike in oil prices. But the main loser here is obviously uh, the KRG. But back to your, your initial, uh, your, your principal question. So Turkey wants to use this pipeline shutdown as a leverage, not only to force KRG and Baghdad to have an agreement, so you won't be facing um, a further breach of, of the ITP. And second, remember that this award, this 1.5, is between 2014 and 2018. The, uh, the uh, tribunal isn't done looking at how much uh, how much money is owed to who and by who between 2018 and 2023. So yes, it's only a billion and a half, but Turkey could be liable to actually even lose more. Uh, and I think Turkey basically wants to use the leverage that it has, which is shutting down the pipeline, to sort out this, uh, the remainder of whatever it might lose in the future before it, it allows Baghdad to reopen it. And this is on the Turkish side. The Iraqi government is yet to ask the Turkish side to reopen the pipeline for reasons that escape me. Uh, meanwhile, the KRG is losing about a billion dollars of revenue uh, a month. So despite the internal deal between KRG and Baghdad, 
there has not been a deal between Iraq and Turkey. And you mentioned that high-level visit, which which has been important. And again, I have been asking Iraqi officials and Turkish officials about where do they take this? Because this could be a legal win for Iraq, and it has been a legal win, but Iraqis could actually turn it, well, Iraqis and Turks could, could turn it into a political loss. And I think the uh, enforcing the award in a U.S. district court is, is an escalatory measure, uh, for sure. Uh, the uh, Using the win by, by the Iraqi government uh, to get concessions from Turkey on water, maybe on some military bases, maybe on trade, there was an argument, there was a, a discussion that Turkey and Iraq are going to open a, uh, a land bridge, so to speak, from southern Iraq uh, that will then increase the trade not only between Iraq and Turkey, but between Iraq and the Gulf states and will shorten the amount of time that it takes for Turkish goods and European goods to reach uh, Iraqi and Gulf markets. All of these were kind of the rational approach. But let's not forget that oil nationalism is in the DNA of Iraqi Arab nationalism as well. And there is there are parts, maybe Sudani, uh, uh, I had the opportunity of asking him this question uh, at the Soleimani Forum in March, uh, and he, he adopted the kind of broader Iraq-Turkey relationship. But I know that there are also elements in the Iraqi bureaucracy, in the Iraqi power structure that really want to, you know, stick it to Turkey, for lack of a better word. So we're at a kind of an impasse here, um, and let's see how this pans out. But I just want to add, Bilal, that my Iraqi Kurdish sources told me um, that under their agreement with Baghdad, uh, the oil they sell, the proceeds of the oil they sell, will continue to go to them directly uh, to an account that they hold that won't be controlled by the Iraqi government, but that will be transparent so that Iraqi authorities will have eyes on the revenue flow, which I think is an important point because ultimately the Iraqi could still control that revenue and can use their discretion to disperse it in whichever way they deem fit, kind of critical. But um, of course, Sitting in Erbil and looking at Turkey hold up this flow, I really wonder whether they're not questioning uh, the strength of that alliance, which seemed, at least on the KDP side, uh, quite unshakable for all these years. And um, also, of course, there's this other development where Turkey tried to, well, the, con the consensus is that Turkey carried out this attack, tried to assassinate or at least send a very strong warning to the commander-in-chief of the Syrian Democratic Forces, a Muslim Kobani, uh, in Suleymaniyah, near the airport, with three U.S. military officials in his convoy. And, of course, we heard a very harsh reaction from the Iraqi presidency, but not from Sudanese office. They've said mm -hmm. nothing. The Pentagon right. stuff, they didn't point fingers at Turkey, but, you know, reacted. But so far, White House... National Security Council has said nothing. And in the meantime, we've seen this play out domestically in Iraqi Kurdistan with the PUK saying KDP provided the intelligence and the right. KDP, uh, claiming the reverse. Uh, and at the same time, factions within the PUK also pointing the finger of blame at each other. What do you make of all of that, dear Bilal? And what are the broader implications 
Well, let me let me start by saying that the reporting on this. Uh, let me start by saying that your reporting on this is second to none. So whatever I know is from your excellent reporting and your your excellent uh, sources. Uh, let me just say a word before I talk about the the drone attack on the on the uh, KRG Baghdad deal. It is a win win. Because for Baghdad, it's a win because it regains some of the control over the oil and gas industry in Iraq, not totally centralize it, but regain some of the control. Uh, and Iraq needs that, as I said, in part because of the oil nationalism. From the get-go, they opposed every step of KRG independent energy policy from the contracts to the sales. Uh, so this gives them some measure of, of a win. Uh, it's not rolling back the entirety of the KRG energy industry. Uh, two, it's also important for Baghdad to have a say in oil sales because they're a member of OPEC and the KRG never contributed to uh, Iraqi's commitments to OPEC. Iraq always had to, whenever it had to shut down or, or increase production, it had to do it out of federally controlled oil fields. So this also gives it a measure of control over all oil exports. On the KRG side, it is a win because at least it, it potentially could block, it hasn't done so yet, but could potentially uh, uh, reopen the flow uh, of oil. And I think also for, for Iraqi energy industry and for just good governance, uh, the bank account that you mentioned, because the, the, con the agreement stipulates that, as I, I mentioned the SOMO part, that SOMO will market Kurdish oil, but the Kurds will have a say in, in SOMO. And as you mentioned, the flow of revenue will be in a in an account that is an Iraqi account that's controlled by uh, the KRG of which Iraq is going to have visibility and that question of visibility is important because I mentioned good governance uh, if you want to criticize the KRG energy industry it's lack of transparency so this will add a measure of transparency I don't think Iraq Kurdish civil society can hold the KRG accountable but the Iraqi government the Kurdish government can basically eye each other see each other and it's, it's good to have a set of uh, Kurdish eyes on Iraqi oil and a set of Iraqi eyes uh, on Kurdish oil. So that's why I see it as, as a win-win for transparency, for transparency's sake. And maybe also for the KRG, another win is the KRG has been selling oil at a very steep discount, political discount. Uh, now they don't have to uh, you know, suffer that kind of discount, which, which recently has actually risen to about you know, all the way between 15 to 16 uh, dollars below market price. So that's also a net win, a net gain for the KRG. I agree with the latter. I didn't quite follow your earlier point about now the, the KRG can resume exports. Um, you mean within a more institutionalized framework, presumably. That's your point. Right. Well, potentially, if Turkey were, were to play ball, were to play yeah, along. Yeah. But, but as we discussed, that's not happening. I, have. I know I wanted to move on to the drone strike. and um, But None of this addresses the issue of, uh, you know, um, the uh, IOCs and their production and exploration deals with the KRG. Does Iraq have a veto power over that? So, so this is the other win for the KRG. But as I said, I mean, the caveat here is that all of this is a political deal. It's not in, it's not codified in a law. But yes, I mentioned that the Iraqi Federal Supreme Court had decided that exactly. all of uh, yeah. So. So, so this deal between that? yeah. So this deal basically puts that on a pause. The, okay. it, it puts the focus on revenue, 
generation, uh, SOMO, marketing the oil, where the oil goes. And then it also promises that they're going to pass that national oil and gas law. But then it allows the KRG oil production to continue. But in practice, if effectively the KRG production has been, has been brought to a halt, because the storage limits have been reached. Right. And if the oil is not flowing, the IOCs are unable to, uh, to produce. So moving on to the drone strike. Let's do that. Uh, again, your reporting on this is, is, is excellent. Uh, there has been an uptick in regional attacks on the KRG. Uh, this uh, attack at the Soleimani airport targeting Muslim is probably... Uh, the last, uh, the the most recent one. I don't think it will be the last one, but to put in perspective, there was a Turkish attack on a resort in summer of 2022 that killed a score of civilians. Uh, I already mentioned how uh, Iran attacked the uh, the house of the car CEO with ballistic missiles. Uh, Iranian militias have been attacking oil fields and facilities. So this, these, I mean, Turkey uh, used drones to kill high targets deep inside Solomonia. One of them uh, was, was even close to, a, to an amusement park. So these regional attacks on the KRG uh, have been rising. And this is just the latest uh, uh, there. Uh, I think these external pressures uh, are... are weakening an already uh, weaker fabric inside the KRG and between KRG and Baghdad. So put differently, Amberin, uh, I think Iran and Turkey have just less qualms about attacking the KRG as they did even five years ago, uh, because the door is just a lot more open than it used to be. These countries didn't really respect Iraqi sovereignty all that much. But it's one thing to, you know, attack a village at the border, <clears throat> and Iran and Turkey have done, you know, plenty of that. But it's another to attack an airport. It's another to attack, uh, you know, a major uh, mansion in the middle of Erbil with cruise missiles that woke up the entire uh, capital of the KRG. It's, on the one hand, it, de it demonstrates the weakness of Iraq. It also demonstrates the weakening of the KRG. But my take on this is that these external pressures notwithstanding, uh, the main threat to the KRG is implosion. You mentioned how the KRG could not condemn these attacks with one voice. And, uh, you know, within, within a breath, they started attacking each other, the KDP and the PUK, and then, you know, elements within the KDP, elements within the PUK. This is basically the sign of the times. I think the KRG power... Uh, is on decline, and Turkey and Iran see this on decline inside the KRG, the cohesion, the unity, the ability to govern, the ability to to function as a unit. I mean, the PUK team has has not been attending KRG meetings since uh, October of last year, and that basically culminated uh, the tensions between KDP and PUK culminated. There were there were these these factors that I'm happy to talk about. But it culminated after the uh, assassination of uh, Haukar Jaff, who was a PUK intel officer who fled to Erbil, and then he was assassinated uh, in Erbil. And then an Erbil court issued a, an arrest warrant or an investigation warrant for the for Bafal Talabani, who is the head of PUK, and Kuba Talabani, who is a deputy prime minister. They took offense. They boycotted uh, meetings. So these leaders who run the KRG have not actually met eye to eye since uh, since October. And this weakens them. This weakens them 
internally. This weakens them in the eyes of Baghdad, which has increasingly been dealing with, with uh, PUK and KDP separately rather than with the KRG as a government. And then, you know, Turkey and, and Iran basically look at the scene and uh, they have, as I said, they, they, they see themselves as less restrained to carry this kind of brazen attacks. Well, and also, again, the silence out of the U.S. is quite, I think, shocking. <laughs> and uh... I, I would agree. I, I would agree. There was a time. There was a time that uh, the these issue, these kind of attacks would would result in an uproar by Washington. You know, using well, not least because U.S. officials were in that convoy, and the target is the U.S. top ally in the fight against Islamic State of the U.S.-led coalition, not just the U.S. And yet you haven't heard a single coalition member say a single word about this, which is, you know, shocking. Does this have to do with Ukraine and Turkey's, you know, reascendance in the sort of strategic global order? Or what is it? I mean, why? This, this, this actually worries me uh, because in the past, I mean, so I mentioned the attack on uh, the house of Bas Karim. I mean, that, for example, shattered many of the studios of uh, K24, a, a TV channel that's, that's close to the, uh, to the house of uh, Mr. Karim. And the first U.S. reaction was to basically say we were not the target because it was also closer to the U.S. consulate. And the KRG officials at the time were just shocked. Like, how come that that's the first thing that comes to your mind? Uh, and these were direct <laughs> Direct well, American Iranian... lives are supposed to be more valuable than anyone else's lives, right? Um, but but, but, but that's okay. Case, there but were that's okay. But lives at risk. Just you know, the Pentagon said so. CENTCOM said so. And yet, the White House says nothing. I find that just extraordinary. Is it a measure again of how you know, much more Turkey has become important in light of the Ukraine conflict, or is it? As you said, a sign of the Kurds' declining power, or both. I mean, what? and I think an additional point here is also the roles of the game are changing. It's it's one thing. I mean, this is not just KRG, right? This is also a Saudi complaint. This is also an Emirati complaint. Right. I mean, the attack right. on Upcake did not result in a did not invite a U.S. reaction or retaliation for that matter. So you have the roles of the game being being reassessed. I think I think the one the one element, and again, Iran is very good at, at probing, uh, and I guess Turkey is 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 doing the same. I think from from recent experience, it's American lives. If if an attack can avoid uh, shedding blood, uh, then it's it's gonna go unnoticed or it's gonna go you know unanswered for. Uh, I think the probing by Iran and now by Turkey is reinforcing this that. It the, the the red line, so to speak, and America has a probably a bad record with with uh, with red lines. You know, I'm referring to uh, Syria and, and, and elsewhere. Uh, I think the red line now is is American lives. And if Turkey and I think Turkey probably with that attack at the Soleimani airport, it was intentionally uh, hit to miss uh, because they wanted to send the message, but they also did not want to start you know a conflict with with the United States. Uh, by killing, you know, American American soldiers, uh, but the chutzpah to actually even carry out the attack, uh, I think, is just a sign of the times, and also a sign that Turkey has very deep reach into 
Iraqi Kurdish intelligence and security services, or else how would it know to hit that location? How would it know that Muslim Kobani was in a convoy there at that time? I think that's a very fair point. <laughs> and well, it's not the first time. It's not the first time that the Iranian and Turkish intelligence capabilities, uh, dare I say infiltration, uh, has been has been shown to be very effective. Well, dear Bilal, on that note, I shall let you get back to your work and to your calligraphy. Uh, Thank you. Yes, our audience should know that uh, Bilal Wahab, in addition to being a brilliant expert, is a brilliant calligrapher. So, well, you're very kind. Thank you, Amber. Happy Ramadan to you and yours, dear Bilal, and hope to talk to you again very soon. And to you, thank you for having me in your podcast. And this brings us to the end of On the Middle East. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Bilal, and I look forward to being with you again very soon. Thank you and goodbye.